So we're jumping into week two of a series entitled, That's What He Said. Now, what we're talking about is really the words of Jesus. And last week we said really that we're examining the words of Jesus because if you want to know really what God wants for our lives, if you really want to know what, what makes God, um, what pleases God, or how, what, how God wants us to behave and how He wants us to act, then we need to look no further than the words of Jesus. Because we can look in the words of Jesus and find what He really wants us to know. And if you're maybe new to, to the Bible or to Christianity or this whole church thing, and if you have a Bible and, and in the Bible the words are read in the New Testament, read, um, those are normally the words of Jesus. And, and really what this series is going to be about is really examining over the next few weeks, really what did Jesus tell his followers? What did he want you and I to know? Now to recap really kind of what we talked about last week is we talked about um, one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. And it's, it's a pretty intense verse. It's John 14, 6. And if you weren't here, just have a bad memory. I'll give you a real quick recap of what we kind of talked about. We broke John 14, 6 really into three segments. And I'll, I'll repeat the verse for us. It's, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we broke it literally down in literally the segments of the verse that it lays out. So I am the way. And we talked about this, this exclusive statement that's really bad news, but also really good news, right? It's good news that you and I get to go to heaven and we can be with God someday that God provided a way for us. That's good news. And we said that that's an exclusive statement that Jesus made, that he's the only way to heaven, to, to know the Father. The second was the truth. He says, I am the way, I am the truth. And we talked, we gave a definition of truth in a postmodern world last week. And we said that truth was that which accurately corresponds with reality. And we said that makes sense, right? Because if God, if Jesus, if it created the world, then he would create the reality that is the world. And so anything he said would accurately correspond with the world that you and I live in. And then the last is we said that he is the life. And it would make sense that if he did create the world and life and everything in it, that you and I would only get to experience life as it's intended to be, tethered in a relationship with him. So that was kind of what we talked about last week. We landed on the truth that Jesus promises that he is the way about the Father. I'm sorry, he is the, yeah, he is the way to the Father. He is the truth about the Father, and he is the life from the Father. Today, we're going to jump right back into it, and we're going to tackle something else Jesus said that was pretty intense, and, but also, um, I think, really, really important for us. A few days ago, um, if you don't know me too well, I, I run junior high here too. And um, I was hanging out with, with a kid and uh, he came up and was like, hey, dude, I, I just, I got something recently like changed my life. And, and he said this, sixth grader said this, revolutionized my faith. And I was like, what? Okay, so he said, dude, you're not going to believe it. And I'm like, okay, well, what did you get? Like, you know, what is it? And he's like, I got something that changed the way that I view God. I can't believe I didn't think about this before. I mean, if I would have thought about this before, I would be a millionaire. I would have a better relationship with God. I would be really wise. And I'm like, what on earth is this sixth grade kid trying to tell me? Or what is he going to tell me? He's like, and it's, it's, it's all in a bracelet. And I'm like, it's on a bracelet? He's like, yeah, it's incredible. Are you ready to see it? And I was like, dude, yeah, give it to me. What, what is this thing, right? And he goes, he pulls his arm out like that, and it's a little bracelet, a little black bracelet. It just in little white letters says, W-W-J-D. And he goes, he goes, do you want to know what it stands for? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like, what, what does it stand for? By the way, if you don't know what W-W-J, it's what would Jesus do, right? And so I'm like, yeah. He's like, you, are you ready? Are you ready to hear it? And I'm like, yeah, I have no idea. Tell me so that my life can be changed. He goes, what would Jesus do? And I was like, Pff. I was like, oh my gosh, right? Now, several years ago, um, that was a really popular thing. I mean, people were getting tattoos. I mean, maybe people were getting tattoos, but you see it on hats, you see it on bracelets, you see it on shirts, you see the stickers on cars, you see the stuff everywhere. And I was thinking, okay, that's obviously a really important question to ask, right? What would Jesus do? But I think actually there's a more important question than that question. One question I think all Christians should ask before we make really any course of action, before we make really any spiritual decision or before we adopt any new value or any new belief. And that question is this, isn't it's not what would Jesus do, it's what did Jesus say? This is the question I think Christians need to ask because 
really, in, in a lot of situations, we really don't know what Jesus would do. So we're left to figure it out. And although I think we're smart, I think that figuring out may require more wisdom, revelation, or insight, or, or uh, spiritual maturity than we may possess at a given time. But luckily enough for you, and lucky enough for me, that Jesus really did give us a pretty intense scripture. He gave us some words on how he wants us to govern our lives, what he wants us to do with our lives. He gave a really, he spoke more on how his believers should behave than really any other topic. And really what the gospels, that's really what they're about. And if you're new to church, let me quickly kind of give you like an introduction of what the gospels really are. Now the gospels are, are really Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're the first four books of the New Testament. And they're the eyewitness accounts of Jesus's life. They, 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 have accounts of, of, his, um, of his life, of his death, of his resurrection from really four distinct perspectives. And each one really kind of highlights a different theme in, in Jesus' life. And they reveal how the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, came to live with his people in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew is the first one, and Matthew was a tax collector. And, and just like you and I don't like the IRS, they really didn't like tax collectors uh, back then. Or you might like them this time of the year because you're probably getting some money back. Now, Tax collectors really like the lowest of the low. I mean, like they weren't people that like had a lot of friends and here's why. Normally, um, they would steal from people. They would say, let's say you owe the government $100. They would say, you owe the government $150 and they would pocket 50 of that and then give the Romans the, the other 100. So they would really steal from people and they weren't really known for like being good people. And it's really interesting that we're gonna find today that Jesus calls one of these people to follow him. And he also does some really other really interesting things. He, in his book, he really points to the historical and the prophetic uh, ministry of Christ. Now, Mark is the second gospel, and he really kind of shows the power of Jesus and the, and the proof that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Luke is another one. And Luke was a highly educated physician. He was a doctor. And so the way that you read Luke, by the way, if it's, it's really analytical in his approach to Jesus's life. And he wasn't Jewish, and he was an incredible storyteller. So all throughout Luke, it's just, it's painted with really beautiful imagery. And then there's John, what happens to be my favorite, because he chooses to focus on Jesus' divinity um, to prove that Jesus was who he claimed to be, that he was a God incarnate, which we've talked about before, which just means God in a bod. Now, all that was really just in these first, first four books of, of the New Testament. And these are all in a collection of what we call the Bible. And again, if, if you're new to, to church, or maybe you just have really had no idea really what the Bible is, the Bible is a collection of scripture. It's 66 different books written by about 40 different authors in about three different languages on three different continents in about 1,500 years. And one of my favorite things about scripture um, is that all of these authors would have never really known each other. At least most of these authors would have never known each other, but they all tell a story that perfectly coincides with each other. And they all tell a story that it points to this man who we're about to study tonight, Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Um, that's kind of where we're going to be kind of jumping in today. And each, each week of our series, we're probably going to jump into a different gospel. Last week, we did John. Today, we're doing Matthew. If not, the verses will be up behind me. I'll read it for us. It says this, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me. Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boats and their father and followed him. So there's a lot that sticks out to me right here, right? And, and one of the things that sticks out to me is that they had to leave something to follow Christ, right? They had to leave good jobs. And we today wouldn't think that fishermen were like, like, it's like a good job to have, right? But actually it's a really prosperous job back then. They would have been pretty wealthy people actually. So they had to, they had to leave their own job. They had to leave maybe some of their own ambition to follow Christ. 
which really is, by the way, the call of Christ. Often, and we're really going to talk about this tonight, that, that I think a lot of us have a deluded idea of really what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Luke 9.23 is a verse that, that I, I come back and back as I look more into my life and my, my desire to be autonomous, my desire to be my own God. I look back at like a scripture in like Luke 9.23, it's that we need to deny ourselves and pick up our cross daily. And by the way, that means something very different today than it would have meant thousands of years ago. To pick up your cross daily and walk would literally mean that they would have to pick up a Roman crucifix and probably walk to the top of the hill to their death because they're saying, I'm with Jesus. Today, it means like you're not allowed to drink. I don't know what it means today, right? But it means something different today than it definitely did then. And another thing that really sticks out to me is that Jesus' choice of his first disciples is really surprising to say the least. For starters, in that time, religious students would have chose their mentors, not the other way around. Jesus, however, kind of flips the script. He kind of takes this custom and puts it on its head. Instead of waiting for his followers to come to him, he goes and seeks them out. And by the way, like, I just want to click pause and real quick and just think about that. That's an incredible reality because that's what makes Christianity different than every other religious system. It's not that man is trying to get to God. It's that God initiated the first steps in reconciliation towards a rebellious mankind. That's the good news of the gospel. And gospel means good news, and it means that God is seeking you out. He loves, he cares for you, and he's seeking you out. And that's incredible news. And so really what I want to talk about tonight is that everyone who calls themselves a Christian, and I'm not claiming that everyone in this room calls themselves a Christian, really has a two-folded call on our life that really stems from these three famous words that Jesus said, come, follow me. So the first thing that I want to talk about is that we can allow God into our story because the call to follow Christ is personal. The call to follow Christ is personal because it is intimate. And intimate is an interesting word in today's culture, right? Before I think culture hijacked it and gave it a sexual meaning. What intimacy really means, and I think I've spoken on this before, is into me you see. Intimacy is really about transparency. It's about allowing someone else into your life. And that's really the picture that we're getting here when he says, come follow me. God's saying, hey, I want to invite you into what I have, and I want to see what what you have. And what I find really interesting here is he sought these people out, and he's seeking you and I out. And then also the call to follow Christ changes everything. It changes everything about our lives. It changes your purpose, your eternal destiny, your direction, your your motivation for getting up in the morning. It changes you. But often people think that I think that Christianity is for the there and the then, right? Like we become a Christian and we're going to heaven. So that's really, that's it. That's really the big thing of what Christianity is for, right? So that you can just say uncle and go to heaven, right? That's really like what I think a lot of people really think Christianity is. They at least boil it down to that I'm saved, now next stop is heaven. But following Christ doesn't stop at conversion. Right? It doesn't stop at saying, all right, I, I, I get it now. It's, it's far more than that. Really, I, just, I find it to be, just to be the beginning. And the call to follow Christ is fundamentally about denying ourselves and allowing him into our lives, into your heart, and into your world. I had this illustration come to me this, uh, this last week um, that helped me really see this in a, in a new light, um, and may, maybe it'll help you see it in a new light as well. Growing up, I remember that we always had this like one clean room at our house. Well, it was actually my grandma's house. And my grandma would always have this, this one, you know, really like clean room. And it was the room that you could see from the driveway or the sidewalk. It was the room that um, we would have guests into. It was the room that the Christmas tree would go on up. Do you guys have this house, I mean, this room at your house? Right? It was like where like mom and dad would always keep it nice. Grandma's furniture would be in there or whatever it is. It would always be like really like neat and clean. It would have like plastic over the furniture or whatever it was. You were never allowed to play with your toys or whatever in there. Like this, what I had this room. And I was thinking of that often I think people approach God in this exact same way. Let me maybe explain. Like we live with only like one maybe clean room in our house. It's the room that we allow guests into. It's the room that, that sadly I think we really only allow Jesus into. 
We keep this room neat and clean so we can project this image to other people that we're okay and we have it all together. And we do this all because we really want to control our image. And this room becomes our storefront, in other words. But as we go further into our house, what we find is that we're not really as clean as we thought. And that's what I kind of mentioned last week. I think one of the most amazing ministries that we have here is CR, Celebrate Recovery on Friday nights, because it's all about people allowing other people into their stuff. Saying, like, I don't really have it all together. And my hope for this community here is what I said last week. And I'll probably say it every week. Because my hope for this community is not that we become like a museum for perfect people, right? Where we have to put on, like, we have to be fake. And I said this last week, that, like, my, the thing I, I, I just don't like about American churches, and I don't know why this is like this, is that we feel like we, we have to walk in this place and be, like, totally okay. That you're not dealing with anything. That you have no hurts or pain. There's nothing going on in your life. You have to, be, the, 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 you have to walk in here and be, like, have it totally together. That's not what the church was supposed to be. It's not a hospital. I mean, it's not a museum for perfect people. It's a hospital of people who are broken. And that's what I, I said last week. And so, like I said, this room becomes our storefront. And as I said, as we go further and further into this house, we find that we're not as clean as we thought. And that we have a past that's full of things that God wants to redeem and God wants to restore. And the process of allowing Jesus in the inner rooms of our house is really built on the foundations of trust. But as I really examined my own life this last week and thought through this, what does it mean to allow Jesus into your life in deeper ways? I've learned that on average, I'm not really good at trusting God. I mean, we trust our own efforts. We trust our talents and our abilities, I think, more than we trust God because I think, I think because we don't know really what God's intentions are. But I think if we knew what God's intentions were, we would trust him more. You know, one of my favorite... Uh, shows to watch with my wife are those like house fixer rupture shows. You guys, have you guys ever watched these before? They're, they always make me crack up, right? So it's like, uh, they're like, okay, um, we are looking for a uh, 5,000 square foot house with an attached bowling alley. Um, um, and uh, we need it in the nicest neighborhood um, for $125,000 because we're school janitors or something, right? You're like, well, where are these people living, right? <laughs> One of my favorite things about the, uh, the show is that they can, what they can do with these like old ratchety buildings. I'm not like the most cr- like creative dude, and so I can't really envision like what the end product's going to be, right? So I'm like looking at this like barn, and I'm thinking, there's like horse turd on the ground. Like how are they gonna flip this around, right? And at the end, it's like, Boo! it's like super nice. And I'm like, what the like? If you ever looked into this warehouse before, like where we did it, it was the ugliest thing. They used to like store tractors and stuff in here. I would have never been able to see that this is what this warehouse would look like today, because that's just not how my mind works. And that's what I really love about this 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 show, because I'm always astonished how they can make these masterpieces out of these messes. And the thought that I have for us is that we too are like a messy house, which the deed and ownership has changed once you have surrendered your life over to Christ but it's still an old house that needs to be renovated. You still have old habits, old hurts, and old hangups. And those are Jesus' intention, is to renew those things, is to redeem and restore those things. See, Jesus does promise to make us new, but he also promises that he's not going to go alone. We must go in room by room to clean the junk, the pain, the hurt, and the stuff that we've stored up in our hearts from our past. Another thought I was having this week um, that may make this make sense to you is that the way most of us, I think, receive the gospel is by simply just building like a second story onto our houses. It's why some of us can, you know, get buck wild drinking Grey Goose on Friday and then drink like grape juice for communion on Sunday, right? Like, because there's, there's something that's not computing, right? Like, it's like we have allowed Jesus into some parts of our lives, but not all of our lives. Let me maybe give you an example. So as a kid, I, I grew up drinking, right? Some of you guys know my story about losing my dad to, to alcohol. So I watched my dad from the youngest of ages just 
get plastered every single day. And so I picked it up. In fifth grade was the very first time that I saw a bottle of whiskey, and I just picked it up and just started drinking it. And I started to drink almost every single weekend from fifth grade all the way to December 31st, 2010. I was a, I was a senior in high school, which was the very last time that I got drunk. I got so drunk that I was in front of this house. I don't even know who this house, who this house was. And I was just throwing up. Just, I had alcohol poisoning. I drank way too much. And I was just throwing up in front of this house. I literally remember that night, like, having a conversation with people about how I was a Christian and how they needed to come to Seacoast because I was in this guy named Trav Carell, the high school pastor's small group and whatnot and all that type of stuff. And I was literally in front of this guy's house throwing up. And the thought that came to my mind is, what a hypocrite am I? Right? Like, how, how is this even happening? I'm calling myself a Christian, yet here I am in front of this house at three in the morning throwing up because I drank too much. And it was that day I decided, God has better for me. How does something like that happen? It's because I knew of Jesus but didn't allow him to change me. I still wanted to be the God of my own life. I still wanted to be autonomous, self-governing. I didn't want to submit. I just allowed him really to move in next door or for the sake of this illustration, to move upstairs. But I learned that God is not interested in adding a new story to our house. He's not interested in adding square footage to your house. He's interested in renovating, renewing, and refurbishing and restoring what we already have because that's really who we really already are. And so part one of this message is this. The call to follow Jesus is about letting him into your life, into your story, into who you are so you can surrender who you are so he can make you who you're supposed to be. The image that comes to my mind is if, like, imagine you had, like, a deep cut on your hand and you went to the doctor. Your hand would not heal properly if you went to the doctor and said, heal it with your hand closed. It's going to be painful to open up your hand, but that's the only way that it's going to actually get healed, for the, from the clean, it, clean the wound and stitch it back up. And if sin is as damaging and wound-inflicting as Scripture says that it is, you will not become who you're supposed to become without transparency towards God. Transpa- transparency towards God is, is not a natural disposition. Right? In fact, our natural disposition is to hide from God like our first parents taught us to do. Let me quickly read us the account in um, the book of uh, Genesis. Um, It says this, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God. He was walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? What a brilliant question. Why is that a brilliant question? Because God knows all things. He's omniscient. So why would he ask that question? Why would he go, Hey, Adam, hey, where are you? He's, He's making a very specific statement here. He's saying, Adam, what did you do? Adam, Look where we are now. You're hiding from me. What happened? What did you do? He continues and says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So if our natural disposition is to hide from God, then we actually have to work at being open with God. We often hide from God because I think we allow shame too loud of a voice in our lives. I'll say that again. I think we hide from God sometimes because we allow shame, what our past, what we've done in our past or or whatever it is, too loud of a voice in our lives. And shame has plagued us since Adam and Eve, where our first instincts was to hide from each other and from God. And that's the consequence of sin. It causes us to, one, we're in the story, to hide from God, and then two, blame each other and hurt each other. We today, we hide in our homes. We hide in our rooms. We hide behind computers and phones. We hide behind earphones and Netflix. We hide in our busyness, and we hide in our procrastination. And, And by the way, Sin normally happens when you're hiding. 
right? You normally mess up or do something when you're supposed to do behind closed doors, when you're hiding. You know, a hero of mine in Scripture is David. And what I really love about David is David messed up. He did some stupid things, right? And if you know much of the Christmas story and, and, and um, the lineage of Jesus, you know that he, he's done some pretty, he's, he killed people, he's done some pretty intense things. But what I really love about David in Scripture is how transparent he was with God. I think he was able to be transparent because he knew first that God loved him. He had, I think, an accurate view of God. And often I think we have a twisted view of God. We view God as a vending machine, right? We go to him when we want something. Or we, we view God as like this malicious teenager with like a magnifying glass, like waiting for, like angling the sun to scorch us when we do something wrong. But I think if we knew who God really was, and scripture allows you and I to address him as Abba, which means father, and the more intimate word is daddy, then that would, I think, change the way that you and I would relate to God. You would at least feel more comfortable about opening up and being closer to him. And, be, and because being transparent with God is something I think we have to work at, I want to give you maybe some easy application on how to work at that. The first application I want to give you is to pray the prayer of David. In Psalms 139, I love this, this prayer. He says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offense, offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Just like, Lord, search my heart. Is there anything in me that, 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 that's distancing us? Is there shame in my life that's not allowing me to, to be open to you? Is there what's in my life, God, that's, that I'm not either one giving to you or two is damaging our relationship? I love that openness that he has there. And the second would be to ask yourselves these questions of self-evaluation. The first would be, what are you trying to hide from God? What are you trying to hide from God? The second would be, is how or where are you wounded the most? Most often the things, that's where we're hiding because it's most painful to expose, is, your deep, is a deep wound. And the last question would be, what would it look like for you to allow Jesus into the inner rooms of your heart? See, God will not force himself on us. So we have to be open to the growth that he wants from us or he's going to provide for us. If part one, this message is about the call to follow Jesus, is about letting him into your story. Part two is about being a part of his story. When Jesus says, come follow me, he's actually inviting us into the greatest movement this world has ever seen. The movement is really what Christianity is all about. Have you ever stopped to really ask yourself, like, what is the goal of Christianity? Like, you come to church, you read your Bible, whatever it is, like, but what is the goal of it? Like, why are you really doing these things? The, goal, the ultimate goal of Christianity is not heaven. It's not even prosperity in this life. The ultimate goal of, of Christianity, I think, is really pronounced in the book of Romans, chapter 8. Let me read it for us. It says this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And this is our part. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So for the Christian, God works everything together for the good of you and I. And the good is that we be conformed to the image of his son. And you're like, well, what does that entirely mean? In other words, if you are a Christian, then God works all things together so that you might be like Jesus. So that we will become more like Jesus daily. In fact, that's what really what the word Christian means. It means little Christ. When Christ is inviting us into, is about bringing heaven to earth now. Because that's what Jesus' life really was all about. I mean, think about it really quick. Jesus lived 33 years here on earth. Most of his life was caring for people, was loving people. It was self-denying himself so that he could care for other people, which, which is what love is. All of Jesus' miracles were to restore something that was broken at the fall. Blindness or illness or sickness or death or something along those lines. The consequence of 
Genesis chapters 3 is, is death of all kinds, relational death, spiritual death, um, and, and all those other types of death. And Jesus' miracles were, were, were pointed against those things to restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden. And the good news is he calls you and me off the bench to do those exact types of things, to care for people, to love people, to be a group of people that are self-denying each other, to, to more deeply love people and, and, and pull Christ out in who they're supposed to be. And so really, my, my thought for us tonight is this. What does that really look like in our lives? And, and what does it really mean, we wrap all this up, like what does it mean to follow Christ in all this? Really what it means to follow Christ is to allow him to be a part of your story. In other words, inviting him into all that you are and surrendering that to him so he can be a part of the story of redemption that he's writing. You know, I think that like we in America have like boiled down a diluted view of what Christianity really is. You know, if we think it's like you boil it down to like coming to church and, and, and all those types of things, when really it's most fundamentally about a relationship with the creator of all things. And in that relationship, he's going to empower you to do some incredible things in this world. So at the end tonight, I really have one question for us as we talk about what does it mean to follow Christ? And I really want you to think through this question this, this next week, because I promise you, if I've reflected through this question, there is, it's an incredibly thought-provoking question. And the question I want you to think in your quiet time or sometime this week is this, what are the rooms that you aren't allowing Jesus into? In other words, what is inhibiting you from fully following Christ and surrendering and giving your life over? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you, God, you went all the way for us. So Father, I just want to ask God that if there are people in this room that are just on the line, God, that they're not really all in, that they're just living like an apathetic Christian life. I ask, God, that you continue to encourage them, God, you convict them, and you can empower them, Lord God. God, we thank you that you allow us to be in a relationship with you, one that gives us life and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. And Lord, today we ask that you help us step deeper into a relationship with you. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen.